Picture this. You are working in the emergency department when you hear the overhead paging system report chest pain and triage. You hustle over to meet Gerard, a 63-year-old man who corrects you to say, it's not really sharp pain, but I have this intense pressure, like a tight rubber band squeezing around my chest. I don't have time for this, he yells. I've been working nonstop for weeks to meet this impossible deadline at work, and the last thing I need is to waste time in the hospital. Can I just get a shot of something to numb this pain so I can get out of here and get back to work? You are able to calm Gerard down a bit and discover that he has a history of hypertension and hyperlipidemia. You order an ECG and start lab work and convince him to wait for his test results. After reviewing the ECG just minutes later, you tell Gerard, it's a good thing you came in today. You're having a heart attack. He looks at you with shock and says, am I going to die? What are Gerard's risk factors for developing an MI? What are the symptoms of his pathology? And how will you treat him? Welcome to Audio Bricks. I'm Laurel Toft, bringing cardiology from our bricks to your ears. After completing this audio brick, you will be able to 1. Define myocardial infarction, MI. 2. Describe the clinical presentation of acute MI. 3. Describe the etiology and pathogenesis of MI, including histologic changes that occur in the myocardium. 4. Outline the diagnostic approach to MI. And 5. Outline the basic treatment approach and prognosis following an MI. Part 1. What is a myocardial infarction? Myocardial infarction, abbreviated MI and commonly known as a heart attack, is caused by sudden death of the myocardium. This occurs because of an acute occlusion of a coronary artery supplying blood to that area of the heart. Because the heart is a vital organ, dead myocardium can rapidly lead to arrhythmias and other complications, including sudden death, making MI one of the most important conditions to recognize and treat STAT. As the saying goes, time is myocardium. MI is the leading cause of death in most developed countries. Approximately 800,000 MIs occur in the U.S. every year. That's one person every 40 seconds. And this isn't just a disease of the elderly. 50% of MIs happen in people younger than 65 years old. Now, age 65 might seem far away to you, but it's getting closer every year for me. The risk factors for MI are the same as for atherosclerosis, because atherosclerosis is the major cause of acute MI. Modifiable risk factors include smoking, diabetes, hypertension, hypercholesterolemia, and physical inactivity. Non-modifiable risk factors are older age, male sex, and family history of heart disease before age 55 years. Additional non-atherosclerotic risk factors for MI include the use of cocaine or methamphetamine. Now, let's kick this off with a review question. What causes death of the myocardium in acute myocardial infarction? Occlusion of the coronary arteries supplying myocardial tissue leading to lack of oxygen causes sudden death of the myocardium. Part 2. How do patients with myocardial infarction present? Although the most familiar acute MI symptom is chest pain, many patients may not have classic chest pain. 
Instead, they may present with other and what are sometimes called atypical symptoms, which are increasingly recognized as signs of MI. So maybe we should stop calling them atypical, since that designation was based upon observational studies of mostly white men historically. And this designation of typical versus atypical chest pain has disadvantaged women in the diagnosis of MI. But I digress. MI chest pain has key characteristics that can sometimes help differentiate it from other causes of pain. So these classic characteristics of MI discomfort include squeezing, tightness, fullness, or even a burning, not sharp or stabbing pain, substernal or pain that's just to the left of the sternum, duration of longer than 20 minutes, radiation of pain to the shoulders, upper arms, epigastrum, or lower jaw, and it's not affected by inspiration or position change. Additional symptoms often accompany chest discomfort during an acute MI, and sometimes these symptoms can occur even in the absence of chest pain. In those cases, the MI diagnosis might be missed. These other symptoms include anxiety, and sometimes the feeling of impending doom, dizziness or lightheadedness, dyspnea, epigastric pain, nausea and vomiting, palpitations, or weakness. Now, you'll hear it taught that women and those with diabetes are more likely to have these, quote, atypical symptoms. But recent research is questioning that teaching point, suggesting that we need to maintain a high level of suspicion for all patients, regardless of gender. And there are many diagnostic tools like ECG and lab tests that help us to make this diagnosis, since it's difficult to make based on this clinical presentation alone. Part three, what is the pathophysiology of myocardial infarction? The underlying cause of most acute MIs is pre-existing atherosclerosis of the coronary arteries. The atherosclerotic plaque can directly obstruct blood flow, but the real danger is that the plaque may become unstable and what we call rupture, leading to a series of reactions that result in formation of a thrombus or clot that occludes the coronary artery. This leads to tissue ischemia and the MI. Let's discuss the steps in that process. The types of plaque that tend to rupture and cause MIs are what we call vulnerable plaques. These have a thin fibrous cap and a large lipid core. Vulnerable plaques are unstable because of the presence of inflammatory cells and matrix-degrading enzymes, making the resulting thin fibrous cap more likely to rupture. Although we don't fully understand what triggers plaque rupture, we do know that the resulting damage to the endothelium of the blood vessel exposes vessel wall tissue factor, a receptor for the clotting factor 7A, to the circulating blood. This tissue factor then activates the two parts of the clotting process, thrombosis and the coagulation cascade. Well, how does thrombosis happen? When the atherosclerotic plaque ruptures, the collagen and connective tissues located inside the wall of the vessel become exposed to the blood in the vessel lumen. Platelets undergo a series of changes, ultimately forming a platelet plug called a thrombus. You can review this process in the brick about thrombosis, but briefly, this occurs in three steps. One, platelet adhesion. Two, platelet activation. And three, platelet aggregation. There's crosstalk between thrombosis and activation of the coagulation cascade through fibrin. Activation of the coagulation cascade will cross-link platelets and expand the thrombus, which may then completely fill the coronary artery. 
The consequence is that the downstream myocardium is suddenly not getting enough oxygen and nutrients and begins to die. Let's pause to see if you got that. Question. What initiates the formation of a thrombus in MI? Answer is plaque rupture, specifically of the fibrin cap, initiates formation of a thrombus. All right, time for a clinical correlation. Blocking platelet activation using antiplatelet drugs like aspirin and clopidogrel is critical in the early treatment of MI. The use of these medications has resulted in the decline of death from MI. So, now that this thrombus is formed, what does the body do about it? Once a thrombus is formed, the body's intrinsic thrombolytic fibrinolytic cascade is activated, and a tug of war ensues between thrombus formation, thrombosis, and thrombus degradation, thrombolysis. Some of the important steps that stimulate thrombolysis and matrix-degrading enzyme release are tissue plasminogen activator, TPA, which is released by endothelial cells. Also, activated platelets produce thrombin, and thrombin activates TPA, TPA converts plasminogen to plasmin, plasmin dissolves fibrin, and this destabilizes the thrombus. And also, white blood cells trapped in the thrombus release thrombolytic factors. Now on the flip side, platelets secrete platelet activator inhibitor 1, PAI1, which inhibits thrombolysis. And that's just a small portion of the tug-of-war going on between the body's two systems. Now, another pharmacology correlation. Enhancing thrombolysis by administering synthetic TPA was the original treatment for patients with STEMIs, a type of MI. Now, it's primarily used as an alternative to angioplasty, or stenting of blocked arteries, for patients who cannot get to an angioplasty center within a certain amount of time. The drug streptokinase is used because it stimulates formation of plasmin. Quiz time! What does TPA do to a thrombus? TPA destabilizes the thrombus by converting plasminogen to plasmin, and plasmin dissolves the fibrin in the thrombus. Although atherosclerosis and thrombus formation account for the vast majority of MIs, there are some rarer causes to keep in mind. Use of cocaine or methamphetamine increases myocardial oxygen demand and causes coronary vasospasm, which can lead to an acute MI. Cocaine also disrupts the endothelium and activates platelets, which can lead to the plaque rupture and thrombosis process. Another cause is spontaneous coronary vasospasm, although it's uncommon. In some patients, the coronary artery smooth muscle may contract abnormally. This can cause angina or myocardial infarction. And finally, Kawasaki disease, a medium vessel vasculitis, is a rare cause of MI. In this disease, which mostly occurs in children, dilated coronary arteries called aneurysms develop. Resultant thrombosis and artery occlusion can cause downstream myocardial infarction. For this reason, children with Kawasaki disease should take aspirin to prevent MI occurrence. We've focused thus far on what's happening inside the coronary arteries during an MI, but what morphologic changes occur in the myocardium itself as the MI evolves? We'll discuss these chronologically. Let's start at 0 to 24 hours. In the first couple of hours after an MI, there are no macroscopic or gross changes in the heart. At about four hours into the process, we start to see coagulative necrosis on the microscopic level, the term used to describe dead tissue. The cells still have most of their original morphology, but they have completely lost their nuclei. 
Next is one to three days. During this period, we see an inflammatory infiltrate composed of neutrophils, and we see continuing coagulated necrosis, again at the microscopic level. The job of the neutrophils is to clean up the debris left behind from the dead myocytes. At three to seven days, macrophages appear. These are responsible for cleaning up any remaining dead heart cells and for initiating the process of scar formation. Because the dead myocytes have been removed and there's no scar yet to replace them, as well as because gooey inflammatory cells are present, the heart tissue is most at risk for rupturing during this phase. This can lead to a dangerous complication in which the ventricular wall ruptures, causing blood to accumulate in the pericardial sac. At one to eight weeks, fibroblasts are laying down collagen and creating a framework for forming the scar. New vessels also form to bring more nutrients and oxygen and help with the process of scar formation. The combination of fibroblasts, new blood vessels, and collagen deposition is called granulation tissue. After about eight weeks, fibroblasts have finished their job and the final mature scar has formed. The scar is composed of multiple layers of collagen laid on top of one another. It doesn't function as a heart muscle and does not conduct electricity like normal heart muscle cells do, which can lead to Q waves on the ECG or more dangerous arrhythmias. So in quick format, this is 0 to 24 hours, early coagulative necrosis and edema, 1 to 3 days, extensive coagulative necrosis, maximum neutrophil infiltrate, 3 to 7 days, macrophages, 1 to 8 weeks, granulation tissue with fibroblasts, eight weeks and beyond, mature scar tissue and fibrosis. Okay, quick quiz time. What is the function of fibroblasts after an acute MI? Fibroblasts lay down collagen and create a framework for the scar to form in the heart tissue. Now, what about complications following MI? An untreated MI can be fatal. But even with treatment, various complications may arise, some of which can lead to sudden death. These complications can be grouped physiologically as follows. Number one, damage to the electrical conduction pathway. Some patients after an MI will experience arrhythmias arising from the damaged area of the ventricle, often including scattered premature ventricular beats, ventricular fibrillation, or ventricular tachycardia. If the AV or SA nodes become ischemic, heart block can also occur. Arrhythmia is the most common cause of death within the first 72 hours after acute MI. Second, decreased myocardial contractility. Heart failure can occur in patients with large infarcts because of a weakened pump. The usual manifestation is systolic heart failure, which can show up as dyspnea, pulmonary edema, and leg edema. As the treatment for MI has improved, more patients with large infarcts are surviving through the initial phases of this process and later go on to develop systolic heart failure, making heart failure a leading cause of morbidity and mortality in the U.S. and worldwide. Third, thrombotic complications. Patients may develop a mural thrombus, an organized blood clot attached to the endocardium. This is most common after infarcts in the left ventricular anterior wall or apex when that area becomes weak, allowing the blood to pool. These patients require anticoagulation to prevent embolization of the thrombus to the brain, causing a stroke, or to the extremities, causing muscle ischemia and necrosis. Next, 
inflammatory complications. Inflammation may cause pericarditis when the ischemia extends through the myocardial wall to the epicardium, usually around 24 to 96 hours after the MI. More uncommonly, pericarditis can occur several days to weeks after the MI, as fever, pleurisy, pleural effusion, and joint pain. These are part of a post-MI syndrome called Dressler's syndrome. This is now pretty uncommon given the modern acute MI management. And finally, mechanical ruptures. Rarely a ventricular wall, either the free wall or the septal wall, or a mitral valve papillary muscle can rupture, causing dramatic decompensation of post-MI patients, usually in the two to seven day window when the myocardium has an inflammatory infiltrate and is weak prior to the formation of scar tissue. The area of weakness can rupture. Papillary muscle rupture can lead to acute mitral regurgitation and sudden heart failure. Without surgical management, these complications are often fatal. All right, let's see if you got that. Question, what is the timing and cause of ventricular free wall rupture after MI? Answer is, a ventricular free wall rupture usually occurs two to seven days after the MI due to inflammatory infiltrate and weakening of the muscle. Part four, how do we diagnose myocardial infarction? The key to initial diagnosis is taking a good history, including eliciting pertinent risk factors and looking for the key symptoms described earlier. There are no specific physical exam features that make the MI diagnosis, but you should rule out other causes of chest pain by looking for signs like fever, focal pulmonary crackles suggesting pneumonia, chest wall tenderness suggesting musculoskeletal injury or inflammation, or unilateral calf swelling suggesting a deep vein thrombus and pulmonary embolism. There are two main categories of MI, and diagnostic testing as soon as possible helps determine which type has occurred, designates the proper treatment, and helps to possibly avoid fatal complications. An ECG is the first test and must be done within 5 to 10 minutes of arrival to the emergency department. Early MI diagnosis based on electrocardiogram ECG findings allows important therapeutic decisions to be made before potentially fatal complications occur. You can read about interpreting the ECG during MI in the ECG Interpretation of Myocardial Infarction brick all to itself, but I'll summarize it here. The key to initial ECG diagnosis is determining if the patient has an ST segment elevation MI, otherwise known as STEMI. STEMI has a worse prognosis than other types of MI and requires urgent invasive treatment. The reason we see the very dramatic ECG change of ST segment elevation is that dead tissue is a poor conductor of electricity. STEMIs are usually transmural MIs due to 100% occlusion of the artery, and they require urgent, more invasive treatment. To diagnose a STEMI, you need to see at least one millimeter ST segment elevations in two contiguous anatomically related leads, for example, 2, 3, and AVF during an inferior MI. For anterior leads, V2 and V3, criteria for ST elevation are based on age and gender. The criteria are greater than or equal to 2 millimeters in men who are over 40 years old, greater than or equal to 2.5 millimeters in men under 40 years old, or greater than 1.5 millimeter in women regardless of age. 
In contrast, the non-ST segment elevation MI, otherwise called NSTEMI, carries a better prognosis but still requires urgent treatment. These are generally non-transmural MIs, where typically only the subendocardial part of the muscle dies. This happens because the tissue is receiving some but inadequate blood flow, and the subendocardial muscle is farthest from the blood supply, making it the most vulnerable to ischemia and infarction. NSTEMIs have less specific ECG changes suggesting ischemia, such as ST-segment depressions or T-wave inversions. Now, during an MI, heart muscle dies and releases cardiac biomarkers such as troponin and CKMB, creatinine kinase muscle slash brain, into the serum. After four to six hours, we can detect these enzymes in the blood. A positive test can help confirm our initial suspicion that there is dead heart tissue. But note that tests for cardiac biomarkers may be negative on arrival to the emergency department, so an ECG is still the best first test. Question time! What is the most important initial test for myocardial infarction and why? ECG is the most important initial test for MI. This is because focal ST segment elevation prompts urgent invasive therapy. The differential diagnosis for MI is basically anything that causes chest pain. This list is extensive and includes everything from the life-threatening, like aortic dissection or pulmonary embolism, to the benign, like musculoskeletal pain or gastroesophageal reflux. Part 5. How do we manage myocardial infarction? You can learn about the acute treatment of myocardial infarction in the Drugs to Treat Acute Coronary Syndrome brick. But, to summarize, the initial drug therapy for NSTEMI and STEMI is the same and includes antiplatelet drugs starting with aspirin, anticoagulants to prevent clot propagation, statins, and beta blockers. Additionally, STEMIs are emergently treated with either thrombolytic drugs or coronary artery intervention, angioplasty or percutaneous coronary intervention. This opens the stenosed artery and places a stent to keep it open. NSTEMIs also eventually get angioplasty, but within days rather than minutes. Treating an MI with medications and reperfusion, meaning opening the artery, will reduce mortality, but there are some potential complications of treatment. Increased bleeding can occur due to the use of anticoagulants and antiplatelet drugs. Another more general complication is termed reperfusion injury, which occurs after blood returns to the damaged myocardium. How does this happen? Well, once the vessel is unblocked, oxygen and inflammatory cells return to the area of dying tissue and form free radicals. Although normal tissue may not be affected, the dying myocytes are vulnerable and may be damaged by these free radicals. Biochemically, this may manifest as an increasing troponin level after the intervention. Histologically, we may see what is called contraction band necrosis. The influx of calcium from reperfusion causes uncontrolled contraction of the muscle fibers. This results in contraction bands, which look like darker pink areas running in the opposite direction of the myocyte fibers. And now to review that, a question. What is the histological manifestation of reperfusion injury? Answer is... Reperfusion injury leads to the development of contraction band necrosis. Patients who have had an acute MI will need aggressive long-term management of hyperlipidemia, hypertension, and diabetes. 
Smoking cessation is also crucially important. In addition to these lifestyle changes, patients after MI will need to take medications to prevent complications and to prevent recurrence. These meds include aspirin. This antiplatelet drug is used indefinitely after MI. It reduces the rate of secondary MI, stroke, and vascular death. Patients with STEMIs are also treated for up to one year with a P2Y12 receptor-blocking drug such as clopidogrel. Beta blockers are next. These are used in the chronic setting and have proven beneficial in terms of mortality. When beta blockers are used for secondary prevention, patients have a lower risk of cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, and non-fatal stroke. Angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors, or ACE inhibitors, are now used routinely after myocardial infarction when there is a reduction in ejection fraction or clinical heart failure. Also, HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors, commonly referred to as statins, work by inhibiting the enzyme that converts acetyl-CoA to cholesterol. They have a modest reduction in the risk of MI in patients with hyperlipidemia, and when administered before intervention, they significantly reduce incidence of post-procedural myocardial infarction. Let's see if you got all that. What medications should be considered as long-term treatment for a patient after acute MI? Medications that should be considered for a patient after acute MI include aspirin, beta blockers, statins, and sometimes ACE inhibitors. Because of improved treatments, the 30-day survival rate after an acute MI is about 95% and about 91 to 95% at one year. However, survivors have increased risk of heart failure, recurrent MI, stroke, and arrhythmias. And that's it for myocardial infarction. Thanks for sticking with me. Lots of information, but since MI is a leading cause of death, it's a worthwhile investment of time. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a cardiologist. Let's check your knowledge and see what we've learned today. First, can you define myocardial infarction? MI is caused by the death of myocardial tissue due to inadequate blood supply and oxygen. It is the most common cause of death in developed countries. What is the clinical presentation of MI? Chest discomfort lasting longer than 20 minutes is the most common symptom of acute MI, but other symptoms can include dyspnea, nausea, palpitations, or epigastric pain. Next, what is the pathogenesis of acute MI? Acute MI is most commonly caused by coronary artery atherosclerosis. Rupture of the atherosclerotic plaque leads to activation, adhesion, and aggregation of platelets. Platelets crosstalk with the coagulation cascade and are cross-linked by fibrin to cause a clot that either completely or incompletely occludes the coronary vessel. What changes are seen histologically in the myocardium following MI? Neutrophils are the first inflammatory infiltrate seen in the tissue about one to three days after MI. These are replaced by macrophages at three to seven days, followed by development of granulation tissue at one to eight weeks. A scar has formed by eight weeks. How is an MI diagnosed? ECG is the best initial test for myocardial infarction, and it helps differentiate NSTEMI from STEMI. 
serum troponin and CKMB levels also aid the diagnosis. And finally, what are the immediate and long-term treatments of MI? All patients with a STEMI should have urgent revascularization with either angioplasty or thrombolysis. All patients with NSTEMI will be considered for angioplasty, but not as urgently. Patients who are discharged home should take aspirin, likely a beta blocker, ACE inhibitor, and a statin for secondary prevention. And we're done! Armed with your newfound knowledge, let's think back to your patient from the beginning of this episode. Gerard presented with chest pain and his ECG showed STEMI. How would you treat this potentially life-threatening condition? You explained to Gerard that his age, hypertension, and hyperlipidemia have put him at increased risk for an MI. You sent him for urgent cardiac catheterization, where he receives angioplasty of the affected artery. He is then admitted to the CCU for further care. In addition to beginning appropriate medications and explaining to Gerard why they are important, you counsel him on ways he can reduce his risk of experiencing a future MI. When you encourage Gerard to look into techniques to reduce stress, he thanks you and replies, this really has put everything into perspective for me. And that's our show. If you like this episode, send us a comment or give us a thumbs up. Until next time.